Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Indranil Ghosh. Award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Welcome to this week's episode of Impact Unicorns. Today, I'm excited to welcome Ron Rock to the show. Ron is a six-time successful entrepreneur on his seventh venture with MicroShare. MicroShare deploys sensor-as-a-service solutions into buildings to improve the utilization of space, create a safer working environment, and increase the energy efficiency of buildings. This smart IoT solution has been attracting the attention of many partners and resellers of smart building solutions like Microsoft and Arrow Electronics, as well as bringing in leading impact investors such as Avenue Capital. We're delighted to have Ron here to tell us more about the incredible growth story unfolding at MicroShare. Ron, terrific to have you on the show. How are you doing? Great, Indranel, thanks. So, it's been uh, several years now that you've been on your seventh venture. This one uh, is starting its ninth year. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, you know, your background, first of all, um, as a serial entrepreneur, and what brought you to the MicroShare opportunity. Sure, thanks. Well, as you said, I've been doing this now for quite a long time. And my background, I've been an entrepreneur really since I got out of college. Uh, my first job was selling IBM PCs at Computerland when personal computers were brand new. There was no laptop. There was no portable. And everybody was trying to figure out, what are we going to do with this new technology? And I started out helping banks, law firms, doctors use personal computers. I'm getting some uh, crazy background noise in there. Are you, are you getting that, Indranel? Uh Okay, let me mute. That might help. Is it better when I mute? Uh, the, the, yep, I think so. We'll see. So let me let me start over again. Um, so so thanks, Indranel. I've been an entrepreneur, as you said, for most of my career. I started selling IBM computers back in the mid '80s, primarily to banks, law firms, and healthcare organizations. And back then, nobody knew what to do with these new systems. We we started out with word processors and spreadsheets. And there was a need for people to learn how to use them and how to take this technology and incorporate it into making their businesses actually more successful. And so my very first startup involved helping law firms leverage technology to create a more efficient law firm, um, then went from there into computer training companies. And I've always looked at the landscape and see, seen needs for certain levels of services or products to be available. And I would just go ahead and start a company to do these things. I didn't really think about myself as an entrepreneur back then. Uh, I really thought about it as a way to make a living. Um, I like to say that I'm, I think, virtually unemployable. And so I start companies to be able to create a value and do things that excite me every day. Uh, being able to get out of bed and, and, and do a job that, that I think is going to make a difference. And so that's really been the story of my career. 
uh, after successfully uh, exiting my first company when I was 29 years old. I got involved in lots of other uh, industries. I, I did take a real job a few times in my life, uh, working for a big global financial services firm in the 90s, uh, a software company out of Cambridge, Massachusetts in the late 90s. And they taught me how big organizations operate, which was very important since typically uh, in my career, I've always been working with big enterprise clients, you know, Citibank, American Express, GE, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. So I've, I've always, you know, there are entrepreneurs that start consumer products or mid-level um, company products. I've really always been at the high end, the Fortune 2000 type organizations. And having an opportunity to work for some of those companies gave me real insight as to how large enterprises operate. And, and that knowledge combined with my always being on the cutting edge, whether it was with computers or uh, telephony or cloud or offshoring, now IoT, being able to bring new innovation into big enterprises has really been where I've been spending most of my career. I love your quote about being unemployable. Um, as you reflect on your experiences as an entrepreneur, um, as well as working in large companies, what do you think the big difference is between the mindset and the approach of the two paths? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the, my last company before MicroShare uh, was a company called Knowledge Rolls. I was an employee number one there, and I grew it globally, and I sold it to Accenture in 2010. And I ended up staying for about six months and then leaving. And uh, it, was, it was very, very cordial. But uh, the way I like to describe it is that uh, at Accenture, um, you know, the day after the acquisition, there was nobody really telling me what to do, but there were thousands of people and a big organization telling me every day what I couldn't do. And in, in big organizations, and we understand this, this isn't a bad thing, it's just, it is, it is what it is. Uh, you know, jobs are divided into lots of different parts of the organization and they all have to be choreographed to work together. And what that means is that if, you're, if you hold one of those jobs, you are very myopically focused on one or two particular parts of the organization. Um, in my experience, especially when you're starting something relatively new or you're driving innovation, it's not clear what each of those individual roles are. And so you, you can't help but have to think about the whole, the whole of the customer experience from product development to deployment to support to the accounting and financial, how you bring all these pieces together. And I just can't help but think of all of those things. And, and so when you work in a large organization, you don't get that luxury. So you get very, very good at procurement or you get very, very good at customer support or coding or uh, integration services or you know, client assimilation. But you, you know, all, in my mind, all of these things are connected. And so... I think for, for entrepreneurs, it's very difficult to take that broad global view and squeeze it into a single job. And, and so that's, that's why I like to say that, you know, it, it's, I'm really unemployable 
to a large organization because I just don't fit that. I have to be looking at the entire, the entire, uh, you know, experience of the customer or the experience of, of growing a company. You know, I've, I've over the last nine years, we've hired a lot of people. We got involved in one of the universities over in the United States for a number of years. We actually set up shop on Drexel University's campus in uh, uh, in Philadelphia. And I was recruiting a lot of interns, co-ops. And we I'll never forget, we had this, these two young women come to us who were, uh, uh, you know, not not U.S. citizens. They were they were studying abroad and they had an opportunity to work at Google and they ended up taking the internship to work with me at Microshare and when I was talking to them I mean these two women could work anywhere they they just they had all the credentials they were the you know absolute you know epitome of what the future of IT and innovation looks like globally and in the conversations I said well why did you pick Microshare and they said, well, after meeting with you, we realized that we could spend six months at MicroShare and literally touch every part of the customer experience. And if we'd gone to Google, they were going to have us do one thing for the next six months over and over. And I thought that was really interesting to, you know, e even at that age, they got the idea that if you want to really drive innovation, you have to understand the complete picture, not just one or two of the very important components. I think that's a really great story, uh, Ron. And I think back even to my own career, joining McKinsey as my first job out of school with the allure of, you know, potentially taking a CEO's perspective on a business. But then, you know, two or three years in being told, well, we need, really need you to find a specialization. Um, perhaps uh, not only should you focus on the pharmaceutical industry, but pharmaceutical sales. And within that, you know, maybe uh, some specific aspect of sales and marketing. And I'm sitting there, you know, age 27, 28, thinking, what? You want me to become a pharmaceutical sales expert? Why don't I just join the pharmaceutical industry and become a sales rep? So, you know, this is this, this, uh, tension between uh, wanting a creative canvas and being told to specialize, I think, has been, you know, is frustrating thing for a lot of people with, uh, with, with the ambition to take on a more holistic view of a business or uh, solving a problem, which is where you come at it from, Ron. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's great. And, and also, I, I would just add to that, you know, there's, there's a lot of great reasons to take those jobs, right? They're well-paying, they're big organizations, you're going to, you, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with that kind of career. But if you let yourself go down that path a few steps further, you said you were 27, you get to be in your mid-30s and all you've done is pharmaceutical sales and you're an expert in that. Well, that's good, but it's also extremely limiting at that point. You have boxed in your career and it's going to be much more difficult to broaden your horizons after that experience than it is if you made the decisions earlier to to keep yourself more horizontal and looking at everything if you're enjoying impact unicorns don't forget to like subscribe and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows bring the most relevant impact venture stories to the podcast if you would like to review the show go to the apple podcast mobile app or itunes to leave a rating and review
even as MicroShare uh, gets bigger now and it's a bigger organization with more people, how are you able to offer those young graduates you mentioned who had the, the offers at Google to offer them a broader experience? Don't you feel this, the need yourself as a maturing organized organization to create more specialisms? Absolutely. And, and it is getting to be more of a challenge, but we're still early in that journey. You know, we still have a company meeting once a month where everybody participates around the globe. We we purposely share a lot of what's going on with strategic customers and customer development and customer journey with the parts of our organization that are actually building the product. You know, at this point, we've got, um, you know, we've got a, a, a small but growing team in India. Um, we've got employees all across Europe. We've got uh, employees in northeastern United States and, and uh, a couple out on the West Coast. And so, you know, we're already a virtual company. We're, 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 we're dispersed in a lot of different ways, bringing everybody together so that you see what you do matters. We just had our end of year company meeting right before Christmas, and I had one of our, our customers speak at that meeting. And it was fantastic because we, we built this really cool IoT rodent control system for a client. And it was about a year and a half in the making. And our my customer was able to tell the story in a very engaging way, but then call out specific people in the organization from coding and integration to deployment and support so that we were able to let folks know that what you do every day matters. If I've just been writing this code every day for 2021, I begin to think that's that's my job, just doing this one particular thing. So if I can keep providing real-time experience to my employees of how it matters, that yeah, you're, you're, you're one spoke of the wheel, but look at this wheel and look at the bicycle this wheel is on and look at the speed in which this bicycle is traveling and what it's doing for the end user. And so we do a lot to try and, and, and promote the idea that there's a whole vision here that we're going after that will get more difficult as we get larger and larger. Um, people's jobs get further. It, it gets more and more difficult to understand what my particular piece of the puzzle, uh, how it adds overall value. But I think that at least for the next two years of growth, you know, as we go from you know 50 employees to 150 employees, uh, really continuing to create that company-wide vision as to why it matters, where we're going, how we're getting there, and what you do matters. I think that's the uh, the glue that at least gets us through the next big stage of growth. I think it's terrific how you keep people close to the real world solution that they're actually working on and have it come from the voice of the customer directly. That's really um, you know, a palpable way to motivate people, I think. And uh, it's terrific that you're doing that. Um, maybe you, know, you can talk a little bit now about what is the vision you know, of MicroShare and, and the problems that you're trying to solve. Um, and I know that that's an evolving story over the last uh, eight, nine years. So perhaps you can tell us how it evolved uh, in, in that time frame and, and where you are, where you're heading. Sure. So the, the best way to start is that we're software guys at the end of the day. 
I have two founders, Charles Pomal and Tim Panagas, two co-founders that uh, we've been together now. This is our second startup together. And we, we started MicroShare with the idea of building a, a platform piece of software that would be highly scalable, secure, resilient, be able to ingest data from virtually any location and share that data in a very controlled, auditable, regulatory, regulatory way. And our initial use cases for clients nine years ago were helping enterprises deal with mobile and cloud. If you think about it, enterprise spent the last 40 years and a trillion dollars or more locking everything down building firewalls, mainframes, desktop computers. They, they wanted to control everything and make sure that it was secure. And literally overnight, the smartphone comes out and we all get this new device at Christmas and we want to do work email on these devices. And at the same time, cloud comes out. And all of a sudden, I'm, uh, you know, I've got things like Salesforce.com and DocuSign and you want me to share my, my most important asset, my information. You want me to put it out in the cloud? You got to be kidding me. This was a totally disruptive moment for enterprise IT departments. And so we came in with a software platform that allowed you to leverage behind the firewall and in the cloud. And one of our largest clients was um, a large cable provider in the United States, and they were getting into the IoT space. And uh, the idea was that there's a new generation of low power sensors that allow you to suddenly have existing infrastructure generate all kinds of data that we had never been able to generate before things around occupancy and air quality and motion and vibration to leverage pre things like predictive maintenance and all kinds of new sources of data and we looked at that opportunity they they chose us to be the <clears throat> excuse me, the software platform for that, for that venture. And we looked at IoT and we said, wow, this is the problem that we've been predicting for a long time. But this puts this problem on, on steroids. It's not going to be thousands of data systems that I need to pull together, but billions of data that I need to pull together. And that just happened to fit very nicely into our solution. So we went with a 100% pivot, we left the enterprise software space and went all in with IoT. Well, the first few years were pretty choppy. Um, we're out there selling a software platform and it turns out nobody wants to buy a software platform. Other people were out there selling sensors. Well, people didn't know what to do with the sensors. Other people were out there selling gateways and middleware software and all kinds of components. And IoT is really, really hard. It's got a physical component, a software component, a security component, a global component, a privacy component, in increasingly uh, data monetization component. And so we were trying to sell into an ecosystem that was fundamentally uh, a bunch of, I, I, I use the analogy, Indranel, that it's, it's uh, everybody was selling car parts, camshafts, brakes, seats. Nobody was selling a car. And so we had this epiphany four years ago, and we took the best of breed of everybody in the system from sensors to gateways to backhaul 
to cloud infrastructure and software. And we started selling business solutions to business people. I like to say tongue in cheek, most of my customers today can't spell IoT. They don't know or care what the underlying technology is any more than you care about the camshaft in your Porsche or the electric motor in your Tesla. Yes, these are important components, but what you bought was a car and a red one that goes fast, that looks the way that you want it to look. So the technology is important, but it's the, the solution that people want to buy. And that was the most important pivot that MicroShare ever made. So today, we're selling IoT business solutions to business people globally. Some of the biggest companies in the world are buying, buying our, our solutions. But you said it, it continues to evolve. And, and here's our latest real epiphany as we move into 2022. Data used properly allows us to fundamentally rethink businesses. Well, what do I mean by that? Um, think about airbags in cars. We spent decades perfecting airbags. Now, when you get into an accident, there's front airbags, side airbags, top airbags. And what was the reason we created the airbag? So that when the car gets into an accident, there is a greater likelihood that you're going to walk away unscathed. Great, fantastic vision. While that was all going on, uh, some kids out on the West Coast in the U.S. You know, 15 years ago had a crazy idea. How about if we put sensors in the car and the car doesn't get into an accident in the first place? How about if instead of focusing on the airbag, we focus on the car sees a series of events based on data and it says, I'm hitting the brakes. I'm going to stop the car for you so that you do not have the accident that you're about to have. That is, that is a fundamental mind shift in the way, a disruptive mind shift in how you think about safety in automobiles. If the car doesn't get into an accident in the first place, what are all the downstream savings? Not, not just to mention your life, but think about all the downstream cost and the downstream impacts. If I can go from reactive to proactive. What we're learning with the systems that we do now is that we're giving organizations data so that they can stop things from happening that cause all this cost. I can stop escalator systems or HVAC systems or elevator systems or security systems. I can stop them from breaking down because I can use early indicative data that begins to behave outside a pattern that allows me to take action before something bad happens. So now I can take action to fix the HVAC system before the air quality deteriorates and the system breaks down. I can proactively fix the building infrastructure systems before they break down and cause the chaos. I can find a leak. We had a client that that uh, early on, one of our products is leak detection in, uh, in, in commercial real estate. And they found a leak and they fixed it. And they came back to us and they said, um, you saved us $600,000 because the, the way that we normally knew that a leak was that bad is when it's now pouring through the ceiling of the floor below 
and the ceiling's falling in. We were able to capture it at its origination. And so this idea that I can use data to proactively drive value and different results, as opposed to using the same data to just react better, that is the, that is the mind shift that, that we are excited about going into 2022. Why does it matter? Absolutely a safer, better environment for everybody, no matter what business use case you're looking at. No matter how you look at it, huge cost savings if I can be uh, proactive instead of reactive. And then the next piece that we're also getting um, very involved with is this whole ESG and sustainability movement. And so within ESG, the ability to save all of that, that energy, all of the what one of my clients call here in, in Europe, windshield time, you know, guys in trucks driving out to locations to, to, to do these emergency repairs, the fuel, the overtime, the carbon footprint, all of that gets impacted because now I am proactively stopping bad things from happening rather than just creating a, a, a huge efficient organization designed to react really well. So I think that's the 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 exciting thing that we see as we go into 2022. So if I were to take a biological analogy, it's almost like with all these sensors, you've created a living, breathing building, and now you're able to do predictive, preventative uh, healthcare or medicine on it. So you're able to stop uh, inefficiencies or um, you know other problems emerging in the building. Uh, building environment, built up environment, and you know, offer the business uh, user uh, a solution that's going to save them a lot of money, and you know, in the process, also achieve sustainability and uh, ESG goals. That's absolutely right. I often talk about how I think we're br- bringing these inanimate objects to life, bringing a pulse, bringing a level of data around that nobody's ever imagined or, or seen before. So we talked a little bit about, you know, my background and, and, and how, uh, you know, I had a few day jobs with big organizations and I spent a fair amount of time in financial services and was really on the cutting edge of fraud detection in financial services. And one of the things you do with fraud detection is you take a look at every transaction. We all have now, you know, our, our, our Apple Pay, our G Pay, you know, uh, tap credit cards. And in the background, Financial organizations are looking at every single transaction and just asking a really simple question. Is this transaction in pattern or out of pattern? If it's in pattern, I update the pattern with this transaction and I keep going. If it's out of pattern, I raise a yellow flag and I say, let's wait and see what happens next. And that's how we use data to flag fraud much better than we used to be able to do even 10 years ago. And so now take that mental model and apply it to smart buildings. As I have all this granular data around occupancy, air quality, vibrations, noise, light, every time I'm grabbing this data, pest control, every time I'm grabbing data from all of these things around my, my, my physical environment, I simply ask that same question. Is all the data that I'm seeing right now in pattern or out of pattern? If it's in pattern, great. If it's out of pattern, well, wait a minute. Let's start to pay attention. What happens next? 
That's really the same thing that's happening in your car. Your car is driving down the road and your cameras are taking in all of this data. And they're simply saying, is everything happening in pattern or out of pattern? If it's out of pattern, let's pay attention. What's about to happen next? And that's how I see an accident before it happens and I take action. We do the same thing now in hospitals and factories and commercial buildings and stadiums. We're doing the exact same thing right now is the activity that we see in pattern or out of pattern. If it's out of pattern, let me begin to take action. Now, some of our clients are still in that reactionary mode. Oh, I want to see that something's broken or get somebody out there faster. So they're still driving the operational efficiencies of, you know, optimizing my response time. But Other clients are beginning to, we're just at the tip of the iceberg on this, but they're beginning to say, wait a minute, I think I can start getting more proactive and handling things before they go wrong. That's really interesting, of course. And um, one of the things that strikes me is that um, we're also perhaps at a, a sort of an inflection point in how we think about buildings, particularly commercial space. Uh, whether that be office or, you know, uh, uh, retail or whatever it might be, you know, after this, um, you know, sort of COVID pandemic uh, with new ways of working, hybrid working with, you know, the importance of keeping people safe with contact tracing um, and just thinking about how assets are utilized, not just the space in the building, but equipment in the building. Um, it's becoming more and more important to sort of make sure that you you get the, the maximum juice out of this expensive built-up space, um, and you know minimize uh, the cost of the business. So uh, it must have been quite an interesting period you know, between the start of COVID and where we are now, kind of working with clients to adapt the way they even think about how they use uh, you know uh, commercial real estate space. Absolutely, absolutely. I've spent more time in the last year meeting with CEOs and chief people officer or chief wellness officer. Uh, There's a combination of people meeting with companies like Microshare that just didn't exist 24 months ago and before that. And, And so, you know, it used to be with our services, we were selling to facilities management. Maybe you'd be selling to somebody two or three levels below the CFO and they were buying our products for cost efficiencies or maybe trying to create uh, a better user experience, whether it be for employees or guests. But all of a sudden with COVID, people are looking at their real estate spend, which is usually one of the top two most expensive line items on your income statement after employee salaries. And they're looking at all of this fixed cost and trying to figure out what do we do with it? Um, I'm working with one large client in Switzerland who's looking to reduce their global real estate spend by 30% in the next five years. And that 30% is about a billion dollars. This is real money. And the reason the chief wellness officer or the chief people officer are there, we, you know, we, we, we've now all gone into working from home unless we were essential workers. Now, as we see people were trying to bring workers back, we went from COVID to Delta to now Omicron, and, 
And so we keep getting setbacks. People are pushing to be uh, go, to work out of home more. It's lasting much longer than most CEOs thought this would have lasted when I started these conversations 18 months ago. And now a, it, we have a new word in our lexicon that is very familiar, hybrid workplace. Nobody really thought about that more than two years ago. Now everybody's talking about hybrid. And you know, I, I like to say hi, hybrid means that nobody's in the office Mondays and Fridays and everybody shows up on Wednesdays. Well, how do I adopt my physical infrastructure to accommodate that? How do I align my, my corporate real estate infrastructure spend? And it's not just buildings. It's supplies, security, maintenance. Um, how do I align uh, energy consumption? How do I align all of my processes to accommodate this dynamically changing behavior of how these assets get consumed. Well, if I back up and look at that problem, there's one thing for sure. I can't do it without real-time data. I need to know real-time how my, my physical infrastructure is behaving so that I can begin to optimize and figure that out. Well, there was also conversation uh, six months ago, and it, it doesn't seem to be materializing yet, but we shall see. Um, when you run a global organization and you say, okay, we're gonna go into a hybrid workplace, well, what about those that are vaccinated and those that aren't? So do I suddenly have to align my physical resources with those challenges? One of our clients in the United States is the largest convention center in North America. And they are trying their best to still have conventions come back and they're being somewhat successful. Some of the convention tenants demand that all employees be vaccinated. Others don't. And so now they've started to recruit because you're de dealing with large volumes of, of minimum wage employees. You're now starting to recruit a vaccinated pool and an unvaccinated pool <clears throat> because they can't get enough vaccinated workers to meet the volumes that they need. So that's yet another new complexity to how I align my resource utilization and spend to how my space is gonna be used. So it's an evolving challenge. Uh, anybody that tells you they know the answers right now, um, they're, they're, they're not telling the truth. They may not think they are telling the truth, but it's we're, we're in uncharted territory across the board. It just so happens that there's a lot of smart people that are realizing that in uncharted territory, data, gives me insight that is really valuable to help me navigate that and getting data in out of all of these organizations that's really what microshare does really well over the past 20 years i've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs to build impact unicorns in my experience every company that has a transformative positive effect on the world does so by building strong partnerships with communities investors and governments to solve society's biggest challenges. If you'd like to learn more about how innovative entrepreneurs can help to build a more sustainable and inclusive future, read my award-winning book, Powering Prosperity, A Citizen's Guide to Shaping the 21st Century. One of the hardest things about getting a startup venture, uh, not that you're a startup anymore, you're a growth venture, 
Uh, one of the hardest things about any business, but particularly you know, disruptive venture businesses, is to get the revenue model right. So tell us a little bit about how you make money. And as you get more sophisticated about being able to provide predictive solutions, how are you thinking about evolving that revenue model? A uh, great question. You know, one of the one of the challenges we had as a company for the first um, six years of our existence, five to six years, is that we did not have we did not have a scalable business model, and that is ultimately at the end of the day what will drive investors interested in your company, employees joining your company. It obviously fuels the growth, and I talk to a lot of young entrepreneurs today who, with great ideas. And, and I see the idea clearly, but I don't see the, the scalable business model. And that was a really big development for MicroShare to get that right. And I would say that we're about 95% right and it's working. There's still room for enhancement as we go forward. So the way that we make money is we, like most companies today, jumped on the SaaS business model, the recurring revenue business model. And so we take our sensors and our software, all those car parts that I described, we wrap them into a car, a nice simple solution, and we give it to you for a least price per month. So it's per month per solution. Predictive cleaning, air quality, occupancy, environmental monitoring, touch-free feedback, touch feedback, leak detection. We have 20 solutions in our business catalog. And those solutions, when you sign up, you simply sign up for as min uh, a minimum of 12 months, um, and we give you incentives to sign up for as much as 60 months. And so it's a monthly recurring revenue. We bill 12 months in advance, um, and it's a one price does all. You, you, there, there are no extras. You're buying our, our business solution, and it's easy for the business to understand. It's easy for them to op-exit as opposed to cap-exit. And so we have clients now that have signed up for the majority of our business is three and five year contracts. And so we're building that book of total contract value, which is great. So you can look at the next three years and, and already know the revenue that MicroShare is going to develop moving forward. So that's our, that's our core business model. And by the way, the complexity under the cover is immense. And we could spend hours just talking about that. But I try to keep all that complexity isolated from the customer. The customer simply buys the business solution per month, and they're off and running. As we make this shift from reactive to proactive, we're realizing that there's a tremendous amount of value that we are providing. And, and we're not just providing the technology to do this. We're providing the thought leadership what I just described to you about this proactive versus reactive, it is a, it is a disruptive mind shift in, in our client's thinking. And not all of them get it yet. But if you can get a client to think that way, you're helping them fundamentally change their business. And so we have taken our products and we've broken it down really into three, three components. We've got the MicroShare platform. We've got something called the... Uh, uh, the MicroShare Smart Network, and then we've got EverSmart, which is our business solutions. And we are going to start introducing premium pricing for the EverSmart solutions as we start giving you not just the data, 
but begin giving you insights and new ways of thinking about your business model for this proactive approach. So um, we're, 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 we're going to experiment with a couple different ways to charge for that. Um, let's talk in six months and I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> Can't wait. This sounds fascinating, but I can imagine things like you, you know, give yourselves bonuses based on the amount of money you save or other, you know, important metrics that can have a direct line of sight to, you know, economic and ESG value. So that would be tr tremendously exciting to talk about when, when that's evolved. Um, I guess with the, you know, all the success that you've been having over the, the last couple of years, especially, um, revenues and investor interest must have gone through the roof. Uh, tell us how, you know, that inflection point is working in your business. So, so the first, the, you know, the first five years was really a lot of, you know, and a very extended friends and family fundraising. You know, you're going after, uh uh, high net worth individuals, uh, folks, you know, tip, my typical investor up until about uh, four years ago was 100,000 to 250,000. I had a few guys, you know, in the 800,000 and a million dollar range. But for the most part, you're out there pushing the boulder uphill. Um, you know, I like to say for the first five years, nobody really cared what MicroShare was doing. You know, we were we were trying to establish a foothold in the enterprise space around data, helping them use data in new, uh, you know, uh, valuable ways, um, and and so when you when you don't have a scalable business model, you've got a great idea, you've got a great team, and you're you're trying to figure it all out. Your fundraising is really limited to those kinds of sources of capital. Um, but when we started to make the pivot into IoT and begin to get the the pins, the, the underpinnings together of our business model, then we started to attract some more serious investors. So uh, we managed to get Motley Fool to invest. Motley Fool is a kind of, they build themselves as the anti-VC VC. They're the money management firm in the United States, kind of high profile. Uh, Motley Fool made an investment in us. Um, with Motley Fool's investment, some of their high net worth, uh, members who are part of the Motley Fool ecosystem, they made some investments. So it was a hybrid of institutional and uh, Uber high net worth family office type investors. But as we took that and, and evolved even further, we got some strategic investors from some publicly traded companies around the world, a company in France that is one of the primary manufacturers of the components that we use called Curlink Invested. Uh, in the United States, a publicly traded company that is the, really, they're the, the, the chip, they're the dominant chip manufacturer in all of these sensors that I'm talking about in the IoT space, a company called Semtech. They made a strategic investment. And so as each one of these evolves, your, your halo, your brand halo starts to get more and more legitimate. And as you go down that path, other investors begin to pay attention. You know, success begets success in this world. And so investors feel very comfortable when other recognizable investors have taken the plunge and, and you know, put money into your organization. So we, we, each one of those were milestones along the way. And then in 2021, 
uh, as ESG and sustainability and impact investing has become so uh, such such a powerful momentum in in the ecosystem, uh, and what we do is so relevant in that space, we started attracting ESG and impact investing funds looking at us, and in that process, uh, we were introduced to Avenue Capital, eleven billion dollar fund out of New York City. Uh, and they made a $15 million investment in us just in the last 100 days from their impact investing fund all around ESG and sustainability. Avenue is by far the highest profile investor we have. Um, With that comes a tremendous amount of halo effect. And now, as the CEO, my, my email box gets inundated with folks that want to kick the tires and invest in us for for lots of reasons so it 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 is the typical entrepreneur's journey from friends and family to uh, a, a little bit of a strategic group of investors building out your halo effect and now as i look at the next hundred million that we'll look to raise we're thinking about a couple acquisitions that 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 would really help accelerate our growth um it we're we're in a very different very different place now. And oh, by the way, under the covers, your organization gets better at being able to communicate with investors like this. So audited financials, the deal room, getting all the contracts buttoned up, getting all your your employee contracts buttoned up, getting your non-competes, your NDAs, all of this stuff that you run a million miles an hour to do as an entrepreneur, and now that you're bringing institutional money in at scale, it makes you do all that stuff to a degree that is much more polished and finished than you're doing, you know, early on when it's friends and family and, and early high net worth individuals. So all that comes together that allows you to keep going up the food chain more and more to get these kinds of uh, investors at the table. So I think that our next round uh, will be a combination of equity and debt. I think it'll be some big institutional players. I think it'll be some big family offices. And that's a, that, that whole conversation is something that takes almost nine years to build out to be able to get yourself into that ecosystem for those, uh, for those conversations. Yes, and you're on the brink of going from chasing to being sought after. Um, inbound you know, is a lot more voluminous than outbound solicitation. So that's going to be a, um, a welcome change. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it, as an entrepreneur, really 90% of your job, forget about vision and, and evangelizing and development and strategy. 90% of your job as an entrepreneur is raising money. And somebody told me that 20 years ago and I didn't believe them. And uh, every day since, I'm reminded how correct they were. Excellent. Well, look, I I really hope that with this turning point, the capital starts uh, chasing you and uh, fuels your growth further. I know that uh, the the growth has been amazing the last couple of years, especially. And hats off to you for doing that through this incredibly difficult COVID environment. But I think uh, MicroShare is 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 a tale of how you can actually find uh, opportunity out of adversity and and really use it as a platform to to grow even faster rather than be held back so yeah congratulations on everything that you've done it's, it's an amazing story that's unfolding here and 
definitely look forward to touching base with you in a few months as the next uh, step of the evolution takes place. Thanks, Adriano. It's been it's been a whole lot of fun. Uh, you know, uh, for for your listeners, uh, we are doing this on New Year's Eve day, and uh, it's it's a lot to think about uh, what how 2021 has unfolded. None of us, I would imagine, expected to be sitting here uh, with yet a new word in our lexicon, Omicron, and and trying to figure out how the world's going to unfold. And is 2022 going to be uh, something closer to what we think normal is supposed to be or not, um, we just don't know. Uh, and so it's, it's really the persistence to just keep adapting to where the world's at right now and trying to fit your capabilities, your technology, uh, your vision, trying to fit that into the constantly changing new world uh, to create value, to create a better workplace, a, a better planet. That's really, uh, that's really all we can do as we go into 2022. And um, I'm hoping that we can repeat what we did in 2020 and 2021 and just continue to add that kind of new value to the world and, and see how we can do our part to help. Ron, what a great message to end on there. And really it's a message to begin 22 with. Uh, we don't know what, what the, the world has in store for us, but we can only approach it with optimism um, and persistence and, you know, the intention to do good. So Ron, thanks so much for your time. Uh, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Adrenal. Lots of fun as well. Take care and happy new year. Happy new year. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking rate this podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.